This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. There's a lot of work to be done. People want to have a voice to their governments. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Frank Kelly from ABC Insiders and PK... It's been a big week in the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. We've got a, a process now towards a voice for Indigenous Australians, but not everyone is happy about it, I think it's fair to say. In fact, some people are feeling pretty betrayed. Now, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, has appointed academic Marcia Langton and former Race Discrimination Commissioner Tom Karma to lead a group that will help formulate design options. It's called the co-design process for an Indigenous uh, body or an Indigenous voice. It's actually undescribed, to be honest. We can't be, you know, quite... We can't be specific about what it will look like because that's the point of the consultation to design a voice. But I just want to give a bit of background to some of our podcast listeners who might not be all over this, Fran. It's a very technical area. I am putting my hand up to admit I'm absolutely obsessed with this area (laughs) of policy. So Indigenous people have been arguing for a so-called voice to Parliament to be enshrined in the Constitution. And when they say voice... It hasn't been defined yet, but they mean essentially representation for Indigenous people around the country that tells the parliament how Indigenous Australians feel about legislation that affects their lives. It's the thing that Barnaby Joyce famously called the third chamber. He then went, oops, that was, I shouldn't have said that, but it doesn't matter, it had a life of its own. Now, in Uluru in 2017, they all came together and said they want it enshrined in the Constitution. I just want to, for a moment, Fran, if we can, revisit that statement because the statement's actually key here. Mm. They say in that statement, we seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. And that's what's key there. Enshrined in the Constitution is the language. Now, the government, Mm. we know from Malcolm Turnbull to Scott Morrison, has shut this down and said they don't want it in the Constitution. That doesn't mean Indigenous people have moved away from this. They still want it in the Constitution. So now what's new? The news is that Ken White, the minister, obviously with the authority of of Scott Morrison and and the government, are moving towards actually defining this thing. But when it's finally defined after a 12-month consultation process, and that's where Marcia Langton and Tom Karma come in, after they kind of define what it is... Clearly, the government then wants to legislate. But this is where the sticking point is, because the people behind the Uluru Statement, and I would say a big part of the Indigenous community, Marcia Langton herself, (laughs) who's now going to be doing this consultation, still want it in the Constitution. That's the sticking point. And I thought, you know, you spoke to Marcia Langton on on your show on RN Drive. I thought it was a terrific interview. But what struck me was that she seemed to be saying... This model might work, come up with a legislated process, but it doesn't mean that it's not also in line with what the Uluru Statement was. And I didn't quite understand that because, as you say, the Uluru Statement 
absolutely says the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. But what she did do was refer to the Gleeson model, and this is a reference to um, a solution put forward by Murray Gleeson, who's a former High Court Supreme Justice, and he said that the voice could be a body that is constitutionally entrenched but legislatively controlled. In other words, the structure, the functions, the composition, all of that is determined by legislation and that can be changed by the government of the day. But what cannot be changed is that there is some kind of First Nations voice written into the Constitution. Um, once you start thinking about that, I think it becomes clearer, PK, that, and maybe that's why Indigenous Australians like Marcia Langton and others are still, some of them, prepared to participate in this process because if they can just work out a model that is not frightening to the politicians, that could be dealt with in legislation, then perhaps the resistance to having a reference to a body in the constitution wouldn't be so hard fought. Now, the other interesting part of all of this is that Tom Carmer and Marcia Langton have both now articulated that they think potentially this could be a two-step process, that you could create something and then go, hey, you know, this is working, this is okay, and then work towards constitutional recognition. The other key part of what Marcia Langton argues is is pragmatism 101, right? She says you deal with the government you get. Mm. Uh, and this is the government that they, they've got. This is a government that has made it clear that it doesn't want this to be in the constitution, right? So people are being pragmatic. There are others, however, who are very upset about the way that the government has handled this. They see it as incredibly disrespectful. And, in fact, Marcia Langton acknowledged that sentiment too. She said, yeah, of course, people have strong emotions and and why wouldn't they, Fran? Because they have spent a decade going through so many processes, so much work has gone into trying to create something that conservatives can live with and then the goalposts are constantly changed. They are constantly changed and it feels like for some Indigenous people who are working on this that every time they work towards something that could be a plausible answer to some of those those questions, then, then you know, the parameters get shifted again. Yeah, and that is true and I thought it was a point well made by Thomas Mayer who's one of the Indigenous leaders that was involved in the Uluru Statement. He was on Radio National Breakfast this week and, and he just kept talking about the reason why it's important for him and others to be in the Constitution is, and he described it as the rule book of the nation. Another co-design process, you know, eight eight processes in eight years, um, over and over again, we're saying that we want power to affect the decisions that are made about us. We want self-determination. And here we go again. Um, It's another co-design process where Indigenous people are going to pour their hearts and souls into it and say what they think, and the government is going to ignore it. So he was feeling pretty despondent about it and just kept making that point. The Constitution is the rule book of the nation. That's why we want to be there. He said the rule book will simply say we must have a voice on the decisions that are made about Indigenous Australians. So when he put it like that, it made a lot of sense to me. They just want to be in the rule book of the nation, recognised that they get to have a say on policies that affect them. And everything else, how and who and when, is dealt with in legislation. So this process will now begin another 12 months. Uh, I can understand, uh, and in fact, I am often 
humbled by the work that Indigenous Australians put into this process. I cannot believe uh, the effort that they put in and the fact that they keep getting up and participating. I mean, particularly somebody like Marcia Langton, who was actually on the expert panel that worked for Julia Gillard trying to devise a model for constitutional recognition. This is somebody who has been working trying to come up with solutions and has been rebuffed by government so many times and yet keep saying yes. I mean, that's extraordinary in some ways, don't you think? I think it is and it talks to the, you know, the resilience of our First Nations people and their determination to keep fighting to make sure that every single one of them lives a life that is, you know, equivalent in quality and and comfort and potential to the lives of all of us. And that's really what this struggle is about, isn't it? And we seem to be going backwards on so many indicators, as Marcia Langton pointed out in that interview with you. I think it, that's also another element of what's going on here and why the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt, is, um, you know, is at odds with so many of the rest of the Indigenous leaderships because it's got a little bit personal. Ken Wyatt keeps saying, I want a process that involves all Indigenous Australians. People from the outback remote communities must have a voice too, not just the influences, as he called them. And by that, he means the um, Indigenous leadership. And that's really got some noses out of joint, hasn't it? Oh, has it ever. It's a real criticism and a put down. And I I think it, it negates the work that is being done by some of these Indigenous leaders, let's not use Ken White's term, who have been getting together since the Uluru Statement from time to time, a big group of them, 40 or 50 or so, and trying to come up with models that are exactly that, that are consultative consultative right back to, um, you know, the grassroots remote community level into a bigger level, into a regional level, into a state level. They're trying to come up with these frameworks to make sure everyone's voice is heard. And, and it's not easy, but these people are are doing exactly the kind of work that Ken White is talking about. Yeah, they are and, and they will continue to. So here we go again and, um, you know, let's hope at some point rather than just making people reinvent the same process over and over again, we can come to some sort of conclusion because it's not just for Indigenous Australians that this is important. It's it's kind of fundamentally important, I think, for the country, for reconciliation, for everything that we stand for. I want to just end this part of the conversation by reading this part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which I think is incredibly powerful. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. That language, the torment of Mm. our powerlessness, is at the centre of this whole debate. It's about the fact that Indigenous Australians just can't... They can't flex muscle politically in a country where they are so outnumbered. (laughs) David Spears, who I think is in the middle of his very final last week ever at Sky News (laughs) as political editor. Welcome to the party room. How are you going? Thank you. I'm I'm going I'm going okay. I'm very much in the departure lounge. It's a it's a <laughs> weird zone to be in, but uh, no, I'm going well, having fun. Well, you'll be arriving at the ABC soon enough, so we look I forward will, to that. Spizzy. I will. I'm looking forward to that too. Hey, David. Um, this week, Labor leader Anthony Albanese gave the first of what will be a series of vision statements. They're being called mm. about the future of Labor. Today, the Labor Party begins laying down the framework on which we will build the policies that we will take to the election in 2022. 
Today, the Australian Labor Party turns our focus forward. He's signalling a new direction. This one was very much about jobs, about the economy, but also on climate and energy policy, which is an acknowledgement, I suppose, before we get the Labor review, that climate and energy policy were a major, major problem for them in Queensland. Is that is that what he's trying to do here, fix that problem first? Uh, I think he's trying to do a few things here. I thought the speech was solid. Uh, I thought, though, it was risk-averse uh, and perhaps a little unsurprising. Uh, it was still within the general frame of what you'd expect from uh, Labor right now. You know, he's talked, as you say, uh, about new job opportunities, value-adding in mining and so on. Let's make batteries here instead of sending all the lithium overseas. Uh, you know, uh, the climate, the renewable jobs that we know are, are there and we could do more uh, with those. He's talked about the gig economy workers, a growing sector of our economy and how to give them a bit more protection. I think all of that is is absolutely right. Hard to argue with any of this. Uh, and some touchstones there of, of repositioning. Wealth creation is good. Economic growth is important. Coal mining has a future. So yes, he's signalling to all of these groups and trying not to upset anyone, particularly internally right now. But as I say, I don't think it was a a particularly bold speech, it, not a speech that would have cut through to people who've switched off Labor, switched off politics altogether, but an important contribution amidst, I think, four or five important speeches from senior Labor people right now. Yeah, there are. And we're going to get to some of those because some of those are really interesting. But climate was a real point of tension, of course, for the Labor Party and its policies around mm. climate change, not actually quantifying what the economic consequences would be or the job losses or the job gains, perhaps, um, of course, with the transitioning economy. He's trying to pivot on the issue of climate change and what policies can deliver in terms of jobs and transformation. Jobs, jobs, jobs was his message, right, mm. David Spears? Like, that was what he was trying to say. But is it just rhetorical at this stage? Well, where's the shift? Well, we haven't seen any meat on the bones and we can't expect, we're less than six months from the election still, we, we can't expect detailed policies now. But yes, this is about getting really, you know, yes, looking forward at these future opportunities, but also getting back to the core of Labor's heartland and getting the message back to, as you say, jobs, jobs, jobs on any of this stuff, whether it's climate, whether it's mining, you name it. It's it's really about trying to position Labor back to squarely its, its grassroots jobs and wage stagnation. I think this is really important space for Labor to be in, and this is the common thread amongst the various senior Labor figures who are delivering quite thoughtful speeches right now. It's a really interesting period as Labor does try to work out how to reconnect with those lost voters. Yeah, and, and Labor, a lot of them speaking out right now and speaking to themselves, I think, trying to work mm. out amongst themselves an agreement of their base to go forward and jobs obviously got to be a part of that for any government and this notion that to anyone who's listening yet, and there's not many listening yet, so this is really not no. a big message for everyone out there yet, is it? It's about getting agreement within of this is going to be our focus. I mean, ultimately, closer to an election, you know, they'll have to develop, they'll have to put out a policy that has money attached, vision attached. Mm. It's going to be, have to be an industry policy, an employment policy, an energy policy, all those things. But right now, he's just trying to, you know, switch their focus. So they're not trying to be all things to all people, isn't he? Yeah, exactly right. I think you're exactly right, Fran. And this is, as I say, an important period. Uh, and I think it's a healthy thing for Labor to have this this period without detailed policy. You know, not every I is dotted, every T is crossed. That'll come. This is a healthy period for Labor. And I thought one of the best speeches we've seen is actually from Claire O'Neill. She's mm. of the right of the party. And there's, yes, been some criticism. The speech she gave during the week, very much aimed at trying to drag Labor to the right. But I don't think that's what 
what it is. I, I think hers was actually a bit of a bolder speech than some of the others. Talks about breaking out of the guide rails of uh, left-right political divide. Uh, it's about rethinking completely who Labor is trying to talk to and how to talk to them. And, you know, she talks about political correctness having gone too far. She talks about the new fault lines in politics aren't left-right. They're about globalism, about trade, about the digital divide, about generational wealth divides. I think she's right to really put a thumb on these issues. Yes, the detailed policy works to come, but this is, as I say, important right now for people in the Labor Party to be focused on. Let's go to that speech, because I agree. I think out of all of them, it was the most thoughtful and actually complex. Provocative. The electorate is more disrupted. You'll find that all of those those prisms are actually being completely thrown apart, right? They're, they're being disrupted in such an in, in intense way. But that issue around political correctness, let's just go to that because I think that was a really interesting one. She talks about progressives and changing the the parameters every day so that working class people, the, the people who traditionally voted for Labor, just don't really know where to go every day on these issues. Mm. Now, this has upset lots of progressives mm. in the Labor Party. So she has poked the bear if you like, but what's she really trying to say? I think it's about prioritising and how much weight importance is given to some of these issues. Um, look, I've got her speech in front of me. I'll, I'll read just one of the lines that goes to the heart of what you're saying here. Not everyone with a concern about the immigration rate is a bigot. Not everyone with a hesitation about changing gender roles is sexist. Not every social change is inarguably a good one. This is uncomfortable territory for a lot in Labor to, uh, to hear uh, and to talk about, I think. But she's not wrong to be raising these points. And I do think while some are saying, oh, this is you know the right trying to drag the party now to the right, I, I don't think it's inconsistent with what Anthony Albanese is saying. If they can prioritise the jobs message, the wages message, above some of these other uh, progressive messages, that may be the way forward for Labor. And also it's how you talk about these things because if you're talking about whatever it is, gender roles, changing gender roles, it's if you can talk about it as a political party without being divisive within it, without it automatically mm. being something that is the messaging being to divide, I think that's the tone of how you discuss these issues is as important as anything. Another really interesting contributions come from uh, Nick Dierenferth. He's the head of the John Curtin Research Centre. He's written a book called Getting the Blues, which is a terrific title about getting back the blue-collar vote, but, uh, you know, also you're trying to get through this period of um, Great Depression uh, for the Labor Party. But he's talking a lot about getting the working class back and he makes many of these similar points. I mean, he's floated the idea of quotas in Parliament for working class people who haven't come through the union or staff ranks. That's not going to happen. No. But his point his point is, is a valid one uh, about, you know, the last election, remember when we were told it was going to be a referendum on wages? Mm. It didn't end up being that. But his point is, if they'd stuck to that message, if mm. they'd managed to somehow make the campaign campaign about that, about wages, they would have been on much stronger ground in reaching those working class voters we're talking about here. Now, let's move to the government because, you know, they're in power. But the government has made some efforts this week on climate change or, or pivoting yep. or, you know, offering things around climate change. They insist they're going to meet their emissions targets in a canter, but not so much, it seems, because the coalition has quietly set up an expert panel and given them a month to come up with recommendations to use the emissions reduction fund to get uh, deeper emissions cuts. In other words, to find new ways to cut emissions 
David, does it signal that their emissions reduction fund is not working or that they they really quietly understand that they need to be doing more work around this? Yeah, this is really curious. The emissions reduction fund is morphing into what's called the Climate Solutions Fund. It's been topped up. It's got $2 billion worth of taxpayers' money in there. Most of the money so far has gone to spending on agriculture and land holding and tree planting and in achieving emissions reduction for about 15 bucks a tonne. It gets more expensive and harder, though, once you've done all you can do in that space. So there is a legitimate need, I think, to discuss where this fund goes. We've also seen, as you mentioned, extra billion dollars poured in this week from the government into the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, a thing Tony Abbott tried to uh, to scrap altogether. Clive Palmer stood in the way of that happening, you might remember back then, uh, standing alongside Al Gore and dramatically announcing that we're going to save this thing. Now the government's all for it. It's more taxpayers' money through both of these vehicles being poured in to help fix the mess of our energy system. We don't have a market that is able to plug these gaps and and fix these problems. More and more taxpayers' money, another billion this week, is poured in to try and do the job. It just really underlines how problematic this energy system has become. Yeah, and I think it's an acknowledgement by the government quietly that they have to do some things because the, all the regulators are telling them if they don't do something to um, shore up and stabilise the renewable energy coming into the grid, in other mm. words, they don't fund, get some more projects out there like pumped hydro or gas peaking plants, those kind of batteries, uh, then the thing will fall over. So there's that and that's quite urgent. And also transmission. They've got to get some transmission projects funded to get the energy from the pump hydro snowy or the you know huge solar farm out in the bush back into the the cities and this is we've been going slow on this so i think that's an acknowledgement of that but also in terms of the the climate solutions fund the last round didn't go so well i've heard there was only a handful of applicants into that round into that auction so it obviously needs a zhuzh up the rules need to be changed loosened up and be market ready and i think that's what the the plan is from this panel yeah, I think I think that's right. It, as I say, it gets more expensive. I'm not surprised to hear that they're, they're getting. It's getting harder to find cheap emissions reduction through this fund. Um, but the, the billion dollars they poured into the Clean Energy Finance Corporation helped stabilise the grid, as you say, with you know spending on batteries and pumped hydro and whatever. Everything but coal mm. is another flashpoint right now between the <laughs> Liberal and the National parties. And we've you probably heard about the blow up between Matt Canavan and the Prime Minister. Oh, tell uh, us more. Tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> I love this story. So some dispute over whether the F-bomb was uh, used or not, uh, but he doesn't dispute the fact that, yes, there were some very heated words exchanged. This was about uh, coal and the you know, billion dollars going uh, into the CEFC, which, as I say, can go to everything but coal. That's Matt because Canavan it's the Clean is, Energy Finance Corporation. Clean, clean, right. clean. Um, Matt Canavan is the torchbearer for, uh, for coal-fired power right now, certainly in the, in the Cabinet, and he's made his views very, very clear to the Prime Minister. Remember before the election we were told and this was really just a, a time-buying exercise, they would look into supporting a coal-fired power station mm. at Collinsville in central Queensland. Well, it, it's hard to see much movement on this. They're now saying the feasibility study won't begin until next year. Uh, the problem is any private investor, and this is an interesting project, it's got an Indigenous group trying to get it off the ground there, they might be able to make it stack up for five years, but because technology is changing so fast, they can't make it stack up for 10, 20, 30 years. And that's the time frame for these sorts of investments you need. So that's where they're knocking on the government's door. That's where the government would have to say, sure, we'll buy your coal-fired power for 10, 20, 30 years. That's what gets the project off the ground. But can they do that uh, and, and still 
face voters in Victoria, in Sydney, uh, if they're if they're pouring taxpayers' money into in any way into supporting coal-fired power, this is the flashpoint, as I say, between Libs and Nats right now. And there's a bit of flashpointery, isn't there, around Libs and Nats right now? I'm just mm. briefly. The other one, of course, is drought, and we know that this week. Uh, Cabinet ERC was actually deliberating on a a drought package or or dealing with a long-term way of managing what we are seeing um, with with incredibly awful drought conditions. Is that coming to a sort of finalisation in terms of, you know, I'm just asking you for a Cabinet leak. You nearly work for us, David, so just give us a Cabinet leak. I just think this week has been another terribly messy week for the National Party. Yes, last week was terrible. This week's been terrible as well. I mean, even Matt Canavan told me that it it was very confusing, their position on the drought. He's a Cabinet (laughs) Minister. This goes to whether it does last beyond four years or not. This is a farm household allowance. Yeah. Uh, David Littleproud on Q&A Monday night said... um, no farmer will be taken off this thing. Yeah, he indicated he'd give them another lump sum next year. But the Prime Minister's not saying that. His leader, Michael McCormack's not saying that. Cabinet hasn't agreed to that. It is messy, the messaging, at the very least, on this. And we know the Nats are pretty anxious to get credit and to get some more money on the table. Oh, look, I just hope they're all praying for rain now. Everyone's praying for rain, of course, mm. um, to quote the Prime Minister. But also, I mean, as if any government could say out loud on national television, any minister could say, well, no, actually, after six months, then you're off, you get no more help. I mean, <laughs> it was a pretty yeah. tough position. David Littleproud was in there. And what is he trying to do, lock them in? Lock them in? But he has to say what the policy is, doesn't he? I mean, really, this is a minister of the Crown not being able to actually influence the policy. But he Maybe, has to tell people what the policy currently is. Am I right or am I wrong? Or am I crazy? the current policy is you lose it after four years. You get a lump sum, but that has not been legislated, we should stress. It no doubt will be promptly. But right now, you get cut off at four years. Um, hmm. He has to say what the policy is. Right, A lot of the background of this, whether it's Matt Canavan blowing up with uh, Scott Morrison over coal-fired power, whether it's David Littleproud obviously pushing a different line on drought funding. A lot of this is positioning, I think, on the leadership as well. Uh, I hate to say it within the National Party right now, maybe not for right now, but for the future. Who is willing to muscle up to the Liberal Party more? And you've got Barnaby Joyce, of course, agitating in the background uh, as well. But you're right. Right now, for farmers, they probably don't care who's jostling for the leadership of the National Party in the future. They want some clarity. If you are at four years drought support, you are having to weigh up, do you stay on the land or do you leave? This is a tough, tough position. Uh, And to get mixed messages from cabinet ministers on what support the government's giving you is a terrible situation. Just on that, though, yes, you're right. I'm sure farmers don't care a hoot about the National Party leadership. But I did ask Matt Canavan on Insiders on Sunday whether he is considering moving to the lower house at the next election, and he said no, that he wasn't. Well, I think he almost said no, that he wasn't. Mm. And, of course, he'd have to be there if he was going to be the leader. Do we believe him? I thought I saw that, and I, th- I thought he gave quite a convincing explanation on the family front uh, as to why moving to the lower house, being an MP, as many would know, in the lower house does require a lot more uh, extracurricular. Uh, well, than you have to work your electorate, a, a don't you? Yeah, absolutely. You've got to go to the school fates, and you know, every one of um, them. I-, I thought he was quite convincing on that right now, but. You never say never in this game, do you? And he's still a relatively young man. David, it's been a pleasure to have you in the party room. See you in Melbourne. I'll see you down there. Can't wait. See you, David. It'll be even greater pleasure to have you inside the ABC. Thanks, Fran. So it's time for question time and we have an audio question from Stephen. Hello, party room people. Uh, My question is in regard to the Senate 
estimate committee meetings, there seems to have been a big increase in public servants either being ill-prepared for questions or unwilling to answer questions with a response of, I will take that question on notice. When this occurs, when do we get the answer? In my experience, and I have watched hours and hours of Senate estimates hearings, like (laughs) if I was to count the whole Senate estimates hearings I have watched in my life, I would be sad about my life. I don't want to be sad about my life. So I have watched a lot of Senate estimates and they take a lot of questions on notice. They get a time frame for having to answer it, right? And then the department uploads all the answers onto the website and journalists who are diligent and really interested in their policy area will go through routinely. So will advocates and people working in policy areas and just monitor that and look at those answers. And that's where you'll get the answers on some really tricky questions. And I'll give you an example, right? So um, I used to get many stories out of this process. So you wouldn't necessarily get all the stories watching Senate estimates because so many questions were taken on notice. But that's where you'd find out, and this is, I know, nerdy, but how a, a particular jobs program was going. So if there's a new jobs program that's meant to have, making these details up, but 30,000 people placed, and then the answer would come out that actually it's only really placed 1,000 people. The estimates process means that the department has to provide that answer and it's often uploaded onto the website where many questions are answered and you'd get that answer. And, you know, you find out really interesting details and that's accountability 101, isn't it? Because you find out what's working, what's not working, where the overspending has happened, when the underspending has happened, all of that sort of stuff. And that's why estimates is so important, because that's what the opposition parties are trying to find out from government, details of these policies that have got, you know, big lots of money behind them, but, you know, we don't know if they're working or not. And I think the frustration, and perhaps Stephen's question is prompted by the fact that this last period of estimates, just last week, seemed to have an awful lot of questions being taken on notice. In fact, I think it was Monday, Senator Matthias Cormann was before estimates, and in that session... I think it was over seven hours, 125 questions were taken on notice. Labor, you could see, were getting very frustrated the answers weren't be given because here's one of the questions, for instance, how Barnaby Joyce reported while he was special envoy on drought. Now, that shouldn't be a hard question to answer, but it was taken on notice. 125 questions in one day is really, you would think, not how the system is meant to be working. But... As you say, PK, stay tuned for those answers because you'll have to get something eventually. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes I do think there is a strategy of trying to avoid providing it, but, you know. Oh, you think? <laughs> you think. But it's, uh, oh, we've got to check that and we'll provide that. But, you know, you delay it, but it's often a delay tactic. And then there is, I will add this, sometimes the way the question is answered in is, is again, a very, uh, not very useful way. So not Mm. all answers are delivered in a way that I've found useful in the past. And then again, some of them are delivered in a way from a public servant. You think, wow, they said that. And it seems to be a very deliberate effort by a department to ring a bell on something. I mean, Senate estimates, I know we are kind of nerdy around here. It can be quite fascinating. Oh, look, I love watching it live stream. Look, I will admit something to you all. I used to have to watch it because it was my job to, you know, cover certain rounds and I'd watch it right into the night and, you know, write stories on it and all that sort of stuff. But even now where it's actually not my permanent job to have to watch Senate estimates, I do stream it on my phone with my headphones on in the house sometimes and I've been caught 
by my children and partner and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing, That's tragic. nothing. That's tragic. <laughs> and, not, I will say, and I will say not all Senate estimates committees are created equal. That's true too. No, absolutely. And some of the, it's all about the characters, isn't it? Like Penny Wong mm. is brilliant in Senate estimates. Her sparring with Matthias Corman. There is some dynamics that bring out, well, the best or the, the worst The best in and people. the worst of us. All right, that's it for the show. You can, of course, um, send us tweets or ask us questions or do whatever you like using the hashtag The Party Room. Yep, and you can also send us your comments and your concerns. You can email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell all your friends. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.